your first form of Eastern Camp 2011. I'm excited to be here with a great panel. Um, the idea of this form was bantered about for a few years, and it, it never happened. I'm thinking that um, perhaps part of the reason is that to get up here and say, man, I'm a man of impact, is a little bit off-putting. But uh, before we begin with that as an introduction, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the time here that we can speak about uh, the roles that you have for us in life, and sometimes often things that come to us according to your plan are bigger than we feel we can handle. But Lord, we're thankful for you and the power that you give, and the honor and glory goes all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Nevertheless, when I thought about the idea of impact, I thought, um, a meteor, as a metaphor, is good. And, and the more I kind of looked at it, the more I thought, you know, it really is a good metaphor. What is an impact? A meteor, as you can see by Meteor Behringer Crater in Arizona, comes into the Earth's atmosphere with a lot of heat, a lot of sound, perhaps. I haven't ever heard one. Um, and strikes the Earth. And look what it did there in, in uh, Arizona. That's probably one of the best... Um, preserved meteor craters on the planet. Um, I'll talk about a little bit more about that in a moment, but the idea, though, as I mentioned in the introduction, is that a meteor is something that um, comes in with a lot of panache, so to speak, but in the end, where's the meteor? In this case, it was vaporized. It's gone. All that's left is the impact. And really, that's the way God wants to use us. He's not so worried about the heat and the light and the sound and the speed. He's worried about what's going to be the impact. That's what's going to last. That's what's going to be important. Not the delivery, but what lasts. All these brothers that have, that have lined up for this panel today, um, I've chosen, because of their life experience, six different areas for them to cover, areas where they've had an impact. And it wasn't always necessarily easy or clean or perfect, but they've definitely had an impact. And they're going to share that with you. Um, a lot of them will say the question, you know, how in the world did I get into this position? In most cases, the positions that they're share, going to share about are not things that they really sought out in a big way at all. It's just things that came to them in life and said, you know what, I've got to deal with this now. And that's what you'll probably find a lot of times in life. When God wants to make a big impact with your life, it's not necessarily going to th be things that you necessarily feel totally prepared or qualified for. Let me read something out of Exodus. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel came up unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, this is obviously Moses, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Imagine if you were sent right now to China, and the Lord said, I want you to take all those oppressed people in China that work for the automobile industry there. And I want you to take them to Mongolia. You'd be like, well, I've never been there. I don't know much about the place. And here's the thing, Lord. They're all employed. They're working there. I, the employers are not just going to let me walk in there and take them all away. It's not going to operate that way. But that's really what Moses was up against. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And this is powerful. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee. And thus shall it be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, 
ye shall serve the God, shall serve God upon this mountain. That's powerful. And in many ways, like Moses, these brothers were put in situations that they weren't necessarily super keen on or super ready for. But that's perhaps the beginning point about making an impact. God's going to do the work. He'll make the impact. Don't worry about the heat or the speed or the flaming entry. Berenger Crater is 4,000 feet across. I want you to guess how wide they approximate the actual meteor was that made that nearly mile across impact. As of a railway locomotive, I heard 50 feet across. Ballpark is a railway locomotive or 50 feet across, how wide is this room? It's probably greater than 50 feet. Is not very big compared to a 4,000 foot. So think of that metaphor that you're small. Who are you? Moses said, who am I? And yet, God can make a massive impact with your life in spite of the smallest that you may feel. What do I do now? That's what we're going to find out. I guess what I'm going to be uh, sharing about is just, uh, I, I guess it's been uh, a, a really difficult uh, part, of, uh, part of Diane and I, my uh, life and uh, and it's where we've, uh, we had to deal with uh, a very difficult situation in our lives where, where our difficulty really started with uh, when our oldest son, Drew, was uh, 15, years, 15 years old and we found out that he was using drugs. Um, it is something that I had some experience with as, as a young individual before I, before I converted and... Uh, one of the things that I had always told, uh, told my boys was that um, you ever use drugs or use drugs, have drugs present in my house, you're out. I don't, there's no one, two, three chances. You're just simply out. Problem I had was my son was only 15 years old at that point. So I had some very difficult decisions to make because... Um, I, I was a man of my word, and, uh, and I still had some legal responsibilities to deal with, with him at, uh, at that age. I could not legally kick him out of the house yet. And uh, so I basically had a, a responsibility with him until he's 18 years old. So we had... We had a lot of ups and downs. Um, Drew left home three different times without me asking him to leave. Um, he, uh, in uh, two of those cases, we didn't know where he was for a period of time, and uh, and it was um, it, it was it was definitely something that really brought you down onto your knees and you, you realize that you had absolutely no control over, that only God had control in the situation. Um, you pray on a regular basis, but you go through a, a difficulty like that, um, it brings you onto your knees in a, in a way like you've, you've never prayed before and, uh, and rely on 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 God and completely 
feel helpless yourself, but yet you know that God has the ultimate power and control in every situation. And like I said, there was numerous times where he came back. One of the times, I got a phone call at, it was like 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning, and I hadn't talked to him in quite a while, and it was Drew calling, and uh, I was half asleep, and he says, you know, Dad, sorry to call you at this time of night, but I don't have anywhere to sleep. Can I come home? I said, of course you can. Can I pick you up somewhere? Uh, where can I get you? And he says, oh, I'm going to ride my bike. I can be there in like 10 minutes. I said, well, just knock on the door. I'll be at the door. If I happen to fall asleep, just knock. I'll hear the knock. Comes home. Doesn't want to talk about anything. Take him to work the next morning. And uh, we, uh, we actually got together th- uh, that evening with my brother-in-law and him. And uh, um, still, he didn't really want to talk about anything. I said, Drew, you sure you got a place to stay for tonight and everything? Yes, don't worry about it, Dad. Thanks. Appreciate it. And, uh, well, that night, it was about 2.30 in the morning. Phone rang again. I said, Dad, really hate to do this to you, but can I come home and sleep? And I said, yeah, where can I pick you up? Same thing all over. He says, well, I'm just walking around, and I can be there in five minutes. Well, there's nothing close to our place, really, as far as a place to hang out. He's walking around in the middle of the night, like, with nowhere to go. But he didn't want to be living at home. Found out shortly after that, because that was one of the times he did come back home. It was on that Sunday morning. uh, Or that Sunday, he actually came to church with us again, which... Ended up being a interesting, uh, an interesting scenario because he was going to walk out the door because he knew that we were going to Bible class and we're not. Uh, uh, I didn't feel comfortable leaving him at home because I didn't trust him. And uh, he grabbed his knapsack, was going to go take a walk, and I, I didn't realize where he was really going. I asked him, well, "Where are you going to go?" Well, I'm just going to walk till you guys get back from church. I'm like, "Well." If you got nowhere to go and you got no plans, why don't you come to church with us? And uh, he just kind of looked at me and he says, oh, well, yeah, okay, maybe. Threw his knapsack kind of in the door. And at the same time, he realized what he was wearing. He, I mean, he's wearing these dirty old jeans that it looked like he hadn't been washed for like a month. And, uh, and he looked at it and he's like, oh, and... Uh, because he knew of what my expectations were of the clothes to wear to church. And I knew if he'd go into that house, there's no way he's going to find what he's looking for. He's not going to be coming. So I just said, just go the way you are. You weren't expecting to go. Diana looked at me when I got into the car, and she couldn't believe that I asked him to come to church looking like that. But I was just excited that he was even going to come to church. I mean, even a month before that, you would have never heard me approve of somebody coming to church looking like that. Never. Um, but the big thing that, I, that we learned out of the whole situation is that you have to love them absolutely unconditionally. You can absolutely hate the decisions they make. You don't approve of their decisions that they make. But you but you love them 
absolutely unconditionally. It's, it's that love that brought him back to us each, each time. I mean, the one agreement that we always had is if he came back home is that uh, I, ha I have a zero tolerance for drugs. I have no tolerance for it, absolutely. It will never change. doesn't matter if it's my son that's dealing with it. Um, in order for him to be back at home, he went through drug testing, which he would agree to. Um, but it was an absolute consistent thing that we had going. Um, I mean, I, this last time now that he's, uh, he's over 18, uh, he's not living at home now. I, this time I asked him to leave because he didn't pass his drug tests. Um, but because of the consistency that we have constantly always had with each other of, uh, of what is tolerable in, in, in our house, which I always say it's not our house, it's the Lord's. Everything we have is the Lord's, and I cannot allow Satan's work to carry out in the Lord's possessions, in the, in the Lord's items that he, has, that he has blessed us with. And uh, so the biggest thing that we learn is to have a consistency. Now with this last time where I have asked him to, to leave, and it was a really hard thing to, again, I was so happy that he was back home, but yet, at the same time, you know, he says, well, Dad, I'm not ready to give it up just yet. I will one day, but I'm not ready just yet. And I said, well, it's not happening in this house. And, uh, um, but the one thing, because of the consistency that we have had with each other, um, with him being moved out at this point now, um, we probably have the best relationship together as father-son mother son that we have ever had and it's because of that consistency that we have had and stayed true to what we said was acceptable and what was not acceptable in our house um, I do very firmly believe that Drew one day will turn to the Lord um, and that is my absolute prayer it's a father's greatest wish that he can have but you know we have we have him come uh, come over after work every every Monday right after work. He comes over for supper in order so that we don't lose touch with each other. And then we make sure there's enough made so that he can take leftovers with him so that he has leftovers to eat for the next, for the next day to try to make things a little bit easier for him. But when he leaves the house now, it's... Um, there's... There's a lot more of an emotion attached to it. He's not an emotional person normally. Uh, I mean, he, he, he will give Diana a hug and, and a kiss and tell her that he misses her and that, that he, and that he loves her. And this is something that probably from five years old, he doesn't kiss anybody. He, it, it would be Diana's kind of birthday wish from him uh, that, you know, for her birthday, he would give her a kiss kind of thing, and it just wouldn't happen. He's not an affectionate person. But now he goes out of his way to actually, uh, to actually do it. And, and I thank God for all of that. I thank God for, uh, for uh, the strength that he has given us to, 
stay true to true to him and uh, and to uh, to be able to have this, have the strength to be able to still praise him and thank him through uh, uh, through that whole experience. Um, but but I, I really believe that it's because of the consistency and and uh, and making it very clear to him at all times that we're we're doing this because of the responsibilities that God puts on us. Um, that one day, like we heard in uh, you know the, the other uh, was it last night um, when he hits his rock bottom, he'll 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 be able to look up and he will remember that absolute absolute love. Because that one time when he was calling us in the middle of the night, he was, he was coming home because he was afraid for his life because he was, he was threatened with a, a death threat and he was afraid of closing his eyes and uh, you know, just lo- losing his life because of some things that he did. So, Thank you. I'm not sticking around for questions because I'm not qualified. <laughs> when Tom asked me to do this, I was like, brother, um, even though he is my brother-in-law. Uh, you know, as part of the, the church building project, I wasn't the only one involved, so what you're hearing is really just one side of a story, because we had uh, Brother Mark Mazowski, Brother Jeffrey Dudlitz, Sister Patty Dudlitz, and Sister Deborah were all also kind of key members of the group that was involved with this. Um, but we had a church project that was going on for years, decades, if you will, as far as actually happening, and um, at some point we had a church vote where it was pretty unanimous that we needed to move forward uh, to save money. Uh, uh, since I'm an architect, I did the, the church drawings because uh, it was going to save thousands of dollars. And so um, everybody was really patient with me when I was doing the drawings because, you know, you, you put in 50, 60 hours a week at work, get home. I'm also a minister in the church. Um, I'd get to spend an hour and a half, two hours a night on the drawings, and it usually took me about a half hour to actually remember where I was at when I quit the last time. So when you add it all up, it wasn't much time being spent on, the, on doing the drawings. Um, and people were really patient. I know there was muttering, and I know there was people going, for crying out loud, when is he going to finish? Um, but nobody said anything to me, even though I felt totally guilty about it. Eventually, we got the drawings done, and we got quotes. Um, and the quotes came in at about $600,000. And then we, we had the, the unfortunate... Um, luck of somebody suggesting we talk to some brothers from Mansfield. And so I'd say it was all their fault uh, that, uh, that we met with them at camp and, and they said, oh, you can do this. Um, you can do this yourselves. We'll help you out. And so I blame them totally for, <laughs> actually, I mean, there have been a, re- a real blessing. I'm just kidding. But it was all their fault that we got into this. Um, so the the group of us met with them, and they said, you can do this. We'll help you. So we just, and you'll save at least a quarter of the amount. Um, and so, you know, we, we got involved with them, uh, or got involved with the project, and they did help out. Um, my role came on as, as, ironically, this is hilarious to anybody who's a constructor, is that I was the expert in the group <laughs> as the architect, right? And so if you're a contractor, and you'll, you're probably just laughing inside. Um, that the architect is the expert on how to put the building together because the reality of it is, is as the architect, I know the theory of how buildings go together, um, not the actual practicality of how a building goes together. Um, and and uh, in my case, what's even funnier is that I, I do big buildings. So I know the theory of how big buildings go together, like with steel, all steel buildings, um, university buildings, uh, big corporate office buildings. Uh, 
you know, I learned how, how to put wood buildings together in school, but that was 20 years ago. Um, and so I'm going through little books trying to remember how, what's, what's a header? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and, and all that stuff on wood construction, because I'm just not familiar with wood construction. So that, that even took even longer on how, when I was doing the drawings. And I'm sure that the guys uh, from Mansfield and from Kitchener who helped out were rolling their eyes when they looked at the drawings at times, uh, because, because they were wrong or, or partially right or not all there, because I didn't know. Um, but I was the expert, and, um, and so that's kind of how I got the job of, of trying to be a part of that part of the team. Um, and I have connections and construction and who could get us cheaper stuff um, from, from the, the, the construction side, from the supply side. Um, the, everybody helped. Everybody had a key role from our team and was contacting different people and was working. I think that um, when push came to shove, when it was a question about how do we do something and we didn't have anybody from Mansfield or anybody from Kitchener there, you know, it came to me. People would look to me. Um, and, and asked me how it went together. And um, this is kind of what I, I remember a, um, a doctor uh, telling his brother who had just become a doctor. Uh, he said, you know, 90% of, of what you do is looking like you know what you're doing, not necessarily knowing what you know you're doing or knowing what you're doing. Um, that's pretty scary when it comes to doctors, actually. <laughs> Um, but part of being a leader on a construction project when you've got a group of volunteers um, and you're the one in this case that most knows what they're doing because um, the brothers from Mansfield or from Kitchener aren't there is to, to look like you know what you're doing. Um, I think the scariest thing was the fact that, that I was really worried about not so much about getting it done. Eventually it would get done. Um, the scariest thing was, was the fact that I had a dual role um, and I was really did not want to be a part of this job um, because I'm a minister, um, I, I have a, the responsibility to counsel, to preach, and I did not want to harm or in some way negate or hurt the role that I thought God had called me to and that he had put me in already um, by the fact of, of doing the construction. Um, in our church, we've never took it seriously, but in our church, we, uh, we, we really focused on separating out the, the role of trustee and of the physical running of the church versus the spiritual running of the church wherever possible. You know, we know there's times that they kind of cross over, but um, in this, I felt like I'm trying to play both roles. And it was really worrying me because if there was an argument or if there was an issue, um, how was I going to come across, or how was I going to kind of deal with those bridges? The other aspect that was actually really, really difficult is, for those of you that, that know me more personally, my role at work isn't the construction or the, the putting the together of the building. I'm the designer. I'm the one that, that decides how it's going to look. I'm the one that decides which colors it's going to be. I'm the one that decides what carpet we're using, what finish it's going to be, what the ceiling is going to be. Um, that's my role, the look. And so you can ask everybody from Kitchener or from any other church project, what's the most difficult thing is actually getting everybody to agree on what things are going to look like. Um, and so here we are in Beverly Hills. I'm a minister. I'm a teacher. I, I'm now also being kind of the guy who's everyone's just kind of asking, well, what do we do next, even though I don't know necessarily what to do next. And then um, I have an opinion 
on what things are going to look like. A very strong opinion on what things are going to look like. And guess what? I've gone through, you know, through eight years of school and have 13 years of experience on how things look. And so, but everybody, I mean, you know, everybody want, has an idea of what they want things to look like. And in their own mind, everyone's an expert. Everyone's got a house. Everyone knows what color they like. It's very subjective on some level. Um, and so one really hard aspect of it for me was actually stepping back and saying, I don't want to have anything to do with the selection. I'm not going to give you my opinion. I had people coming up to me from one side saying, that carpet is awful that, that was selected. I didn't select it, but the carpet is awful. Bob, you've got to say something. Um, and my response was, I'm not going to say anything. And, uh, and they said, don't you think the carpet's awful? I'm like, I'm not saying anything. I'm not giving you my opinion. <laughs> like, how we're going to live with this carpet for the next 20 years. You're going to come into church every Sunday for the next 20 years, and you're going to have to live with that carpet. And I said, you know what? I'm okay with that, because I would rather live with that carpet than lose one person from this church because of how we deal with that issue. In the end, what's more important? Um, to me, our unity is more important than the fact that I hate that carpet. I just will look up when I come in. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, just, I just thought that, right? Because I do have an opinion about the carpet. <laughs> um, but in the end, everything's worked out. We didn't pick the carpet that was really nasty. Um, we went with a different carpet, and it, it all worked out. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the, the impact, what this real impact was in this. That was my struggle with this whole, um, with my role in this forum, is that I'm not sure of my impact, and maybe there's, an, there's I don't know. Um, a lot of people had dual, multiple responsibilities on this project. We had a lot of help uh, from uh, from other brothers and sisters from other churches that came and helped, that, that made the difference. Um, you know, to, to me, the impact of the project is that through it, we have gotten closer together, even though we drove each other crazy. Um, the impact of the project is that I really had to come to terms with what is most important um, and try to push that to everybody, um, to remind everybody of what is most important. Um, I had to send emails out to certain members of certain committees and say, we're going to get together this Sunday and talk, and this isn't coming from a building committee member. This is coming from your minister um, because the way you're treating each other isn't right. Uh, and let's get together and talk uh, about kind of what, how we're dealing with each other um, because in the heat of that moment, things get tense. Um, we had to acknowledge that, you know what, because somebody didn't like the way that drywall is put up, we're going to take that drywall down and re-put it up in a different way just to make each other feel better, even though I think the drywall's fine. Um, so uh, just kind of more globally, uh, some of the issues that come up and, and the impact that we have as, as on each other. Um, I would say that, that maybe somebody else who should be up here are some of the brothers... Uh, and sisters from the other churches that came and made an impact on us um, and just showed us what it means to be a part of a denomination and showed us what it means to love and to put out 
day after week after week and just take time out of your own family life and travel hours to come and help us out uh, that's to me was the impact that, that we saw that that kind of will transcend time uh, and then last um, kind of the really awesome thing about the way God blessed it is that um, that the church project we started with $150,000 in the bank um, and started the project saying this is how much we have in the bank um, the the bid came in bids came in uh, within um, ten thousand dollars of of each other at six hundred thousand so we were pretty tight on our bids. The brothers from Mansfield said that you could do it for a quarter less than that, um, which would have been you know four hundred thousand uh, four fifty and we we had one fifty in the bank. We finished the job two years two and a half years later. Uh, with no debt, um, and the project total cost us 560000 but we had a concrete parking lot rather than an asphalt parking lot. We upped the materials in some areas and made things a little bit bigger and a little bit better and a little longer term, and um, we didn't lose anybody. <laughs> We're a much tighter group, and so the Lord's blessed it all the way around. Thank you. So maybe 10 years ago, at Eastern Camp, I was asked to give for maybe more, maybe 15, on fathers. And back then, I think my oldest was six. And I thought, you know, what do I know about being a father? So I did the same thing Tom did. I went I found out all the fathers that had had all their children come to the Lord. And I, I had them talk and, and give us their secrets. And one thing that made an impact on me uh, was, I think, Brother Cliff Betts, he said, um, if you want to be a, a good father, you've got to marry a godly wife. I thought, oh, that's a good one. I remembered this. <laughs> now, um, really, before I start talking about being a father, I have to talk to you about being a kid. And I remember when I was, maybe I was 11, 10, 11, um, I had been, we had this berry tree on the side of the house, a bush, not a tree, a bush. And it had these little red berries, kind of odd-shaped, and oh, I had been eating those berries for years. And one day, you know, my mom comes around the house, and I have these berries in my hand, and she sees me, and she thinks, oh, he, he better not eat that berry, you know. And so she says, don't eat that berry, it's poison. Said, oh, okay, you know. But right then and there, I didn't say anything, but as an 11-year-old, 8-year-old, somewhere in there, I realized that my mom didn't know what she was saying. Okay? <laughs> this had a great impact on my life. Uh, now, I don't want to make it sound like my mom was just told anything, but you know how it is. You know, we're parents. We're afraid of all sorts of things that can hurt our children. And so sometimes we are tempted to say things that aren't necessarily true. We're speaking beyond our scope of knowledge. And so I can't say that right then and there I, I resolved not to, to speak to my children out of ignorance. But I really somehow in my life have come to the point where if I don't know, I just don't know. And I don't try to buffalo or bluff them through. Um, the other day, I almost shouldn't say this, but you know, the kids, we had chickens out in the backyard. We, we were raising chickens and there were rats getting into the corn. And so the kids were always trying to catch the rats, and finally they learned that if they got their fish spear, they can spear them. Okay? 
So they come in one day and they got a spirit, and it's just like, okay, well, go, you know, I think they buried the first two, but all of a sudden they decide they wanted to eat one. <laughs> and Lori is saying, no, no, and I, you know, I just kind of went to the computer and I type in rat, and, you know, half of Africa eats rats. I thought, okay, you know, if you want to eat a rat, I'm not going to stop you. And, and that kind of comes to um, my first point. My first point is, you know, if at all possible, let your first reaction be a default to yes. Because you're going to have to say no so many times in life that as much as possible, as much as it lies within you, say yes. Even if it's a little silly, it's a little strange, it's a little gross, if it's not ungodly, if it's not evil, yeah, what's it going to hurt, right? So, um, as much as possible, as much as lies within you, say yes. But always, always say ev- uh, no to evil. Um, I remember when Daniel, my, my firstborn, was, oh, I don't know if he was one or two, there was a hatchet lying on the ground. You know, hatchets are sharp. You know, as a mother, you would, would you ever let your kid play with a hatchet? No. You know, how many moms would let their kids play with a hatchet? Okay. How many dads would let their kids play with a hatchet? Good. I let them play with a hatchet. You know, it wasn't that sharp. I didn't have it razor sharp. And, you know, I don't know, a year or two later, uh, he's getting a little bigger. Oh, maybe he was two and a half, three. He was chopping up the patio. And I realized that, okay, this is not evil. There's nothing really inherently evil about this. But as a father, I had neglected to train him. Okay? This goes back. If you married a godly wife, a lot of times your children will already be trained for you. This is wonderful. (laughs) But it's really your responsibility. It's my response. It's not her responsibility. It's nice if she's um, able to do these things, but it's your responsibility. And in that particular instance, although I had let him play with the hatchet and, and use the hatchet, uh, I had neglected my sp- responsibility as to how to use a hatchet properly. No, you know what? I, I had taught him how to use a hatchet properly. You know, kind of spread your legs. You know, don't chop so you're going to hit your foot. All those standard things that you would learn um, not to hurt yourself. But I had neglected that, you know, don't chop the floor. Just don't chop the floor. Um, So, uh, default to yes, always say no to evil. And once in a while, you're going to make a mistake like this. You're going to realize that you've missed something, that you didn't train well. And that's okay, because this is a learning experience for us, too, as fathers. Um, Be consistent. Brother Willie was talking about being consistent. Um, Another impact in my life. These are impacts not that I feel I've had as a father, but impacts that have impacted me as I've been raising my children. And I realized when, once again, uh, one of the children was young, and they were heading over toward the wall outlet. And they were playing. They're curious. What's with that wall outlet? And so I said, it was Daniel. I said, Daniel, come here. So he comes around, and... My goal was accomplished. My goal was that he wouldn't play with that wall outlet. And so when I said, Daniel, come here, he came right over. Okay, I'm happy. So I didn't realize this, though. But that's not what I... I didn't want him to come here. 
I wanted him to stop playing with the wall outlet, but what I said to him was, come here. He comes here. He looks at me. I look at him. <laughs> he turns around, and he goes right back over to the wall outlet. It's not disobedience. I didn't communicate clear and concisely what I wanted. This was my problem. And I realized that as he went away, I, I, I thought, why is he going? Well, of course he's going back there because I said the wrong things. And I think a lot of times in our lives, we say the wrong things to our children. We have these hopes, these fears, these dreams, all these things that we've gone up, grown up with in our lives, and we project them onto that, and we just say, you know, no, or we say this. Or, but it doesn't really communicate to our children what the danger is. I remember another time I was working on one of these wall outlets, uh, changing, um, changing one out. And Bethany was there, and she was probably two years old also. And she was looking at me, and she looked at the wires, and I was touching the wires, and um, she wanted to touch a wire. Okay, I'll let her touch a wire. I touch wires. You know, in any case, that's another normal story. But so she reaches, she, she just has this, can I touch it? And I just, you know, she can't talk. I can't really communicate in that way. She reaches over, and she touches it. Her eyes get real big. And that was all. You know, we didn't have to say much. They will always emulate the worst of what they see in you. This is my feeling. When I see my children in the, at their worst, I can pretty much guarantee you that it's because of something they've seen in me. They will always emulate the worst of what they see in you. Somehow it doesn't work the other way so much. You know, you're trying to do good. They don't, that doesn't rub off as well. Uh, we need to deal with the world in a godly way. And a godly way is love. When your neighbors are coming over, when things are going well, when you're dealing with people, you shouldn't be talking about them behind their back. You should always be loving and kind as God wouldn't want us to be loving and kind, and your kids are going to see this. Um, one of my sons wanted to build a skateboard from scratch, and you know, he, wanted to get, he needed bearings, so we went to go get bearings. And there was you know, uh, bearings on clearance for $7. What a great deal, you know, a quarter of the price. And it was made by World Industries. Have you ever heard of World Industries? Okay, World Industries. And their symbol, it says, I just kind of caught my eyes, got by it, and it says, you know, these bearings are damned to hell. What is this? And their symbol is a little devil on the back of their package. And they're proud of the fact that they can surf on the lake of fire. I thought, you know what? We're not buying these bearings. I don't care how cheap they are. We're not going to support this company. Okay? Dealing with the world. And be straightforward. Tell them why. And if you're afraid of something or this or that, you can tell them why you're afraid. But if it's not evil... Say as much as possible, yes, if it's not evil. But if it's evil, no. And finally, Psalm 101. Keep them from the evil. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. You know, when you think about that verse written in that context when it was written, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. 
Does that, if I say, yeah, setting something wicked before your eyes, what would you think of? Anything? Somebody give me a hand. TV. TV. It's almost impossible to turn that thing on without evil coming before your eyes. The stakes are so high, brothers and sisters and friends. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Get rid of it. You know, recently, in closing here, um, I don't have a TV in my house. I haven't had a TV in my house for 25 years more. But I have a computer. And as the kids are growing up, you know, we, we do our things on our computer. We check our email. We, we send emails. We, we do Bible studies. And Anna, my youngest, she'll come up and she'll sit on my lap. And you know, she want to do, you, you have things to do. And it's almost like, I, but I just can't bring myself to push her off my lap to do it, right? This is another impact on me. Our children need our attention. They want our attention. And if we're spending our time, even if we're just watching the History Channel and we don't think there's any evil there, that's not time you're spending with your children. That's not time you're spending sharing with your family. It's robbing time. It's stealing time. You know, Joe, I didn't eat the berries. I believe my mother or father that said they're poison. So now I know that they aren't. They might be. They might be, but you're still here. <laughs> they might be. And the other qu question, I didn't eat the rats either. But did you teach Daniel to have safety glasses on when he's chopping up the concrete patio? And Okay, good. A father that's really caring for his kids. This will be real, real short. Um, when, when Tom asked me if I'd be willing to share a little bit about my experience of being on a school board, I, I really wondered what there would be to talk about. Um, so I'm just going to tell you how it started. Uh, we moved out in the country. Um, I decided that rather than just vote no on school budgets, I probably should go and find out what they're really doing in the school district. So I started going to school board meetings. And the, the school board was run, the president of the school board was a gentleman whose name was Harold Abbott. And Harold was a dairy farmer. And Harold would kick the manure off his boots before he came into the school. Um, when they put a new football field in and the grass wasn't growing real well, Harold decided to, it needed some liquid manure. So he brought his tractor in and he spread it all over the football field. We had the best grass in Onondaga County, but you couldn't get near that field for several weeks. So it kind of gives you a flavor for what the district was like. And, and I used to be the community that showed up at the board meetings except for another older woman that, that sat there, and I forgot her name. And one day Harold said, is there anything from the community? I said, no. And he said, do you want to run for the board, Dave? And I said, no. And that was it. And when I went home, the Lord really pricked my heart. And he said, you know, you answered that question very quickly. Well, first, the amazing thing was if anyone that knew me growing up in school would have even thought I would have gone to a school board meeting, let alone a school building, after I made it through high school, they would have been shocked. Uh, because I was not a good student. I didn't enjoy school. All I wanted to do was get out. So I called the school superintendent and said, you know, Harold made that, asked that question, is there a reason? And he goes, well, we don't have anybody to run for some open seats on the board. Would you be willing to do it? What do I have to do? You need to get 25 people to sign your petition. So I prayed about it, and the Lord really convicted me that I should put a petition in, and I did that, and, and I put some flyers in 
people's mailboxes, which I found out after all, after that is a federal offense, you can't do that. You can put it in their mail, their paper shoot, but not their mailbox. Um, make a long story short, time came for the election and I lost by three votes. So great, the Lord answered my fleece that I kind of laid out and I said, well, it looks like I'm going to have a lot more time than I originally would have. About 15 years later, I get a phone call on a Wednesday night before church from not really a friend, but an acquaintance that was on the school board. His son and Tim were in the same grade. And Tim Pierce said, you know, David, would you be willing to run for the board? I said, why? And he said, well, we got an open seat. Um, we need people to run, and some of us have thought that you might be willing to do it. And I said, Tim, I will pray about it, and I will give you an answer in a few days. So I went to church that night. And after the Bible study, I asked the church if, they would, if I could share a prayer request. And I asked if they would pray that the Lord would give me some direction as to whether or not I should run for the school board. And immediately, Sister Trudy Braun said, my dentist says you should run for the school board. <laughs> to this day, I do not know who her dentist is. Obviously, he knows me, uh, and I don't know why. So, make a long story short... Um, I, I really felt that the Lord was telling me, now is the time to at least do that again. Um, I did have the support of my family, which I'm not really sure I had the first time. Um, people were eager to get me to run. So I ran, um, and then somebody says, by the way, you need to put signs out. This is a political election. I don't want to put any money in signs. I don't. Well, the woman who was retiring from the board said, "You can have my signs. All you got to do is change your name, put your name on top, and a different date. Come over to my house and pick them up." It is really a strange thing to drive around the corner in a neighborhood and see your name in somebody's yard. <laughs> then all of a sudden, my wife came home, and somebody else had had buttons made up. I think I sent one to Tom maybe around then. I almost thought of digging it out of a drawer and bringing it just for the humor of it. Um, it's rather uncomfortable. I won the election. There were five of us, no, three of us, three of us running for two spots. And I wondered, you know, what are you going to do with me, Lord? Why are you asking me to be part of this school board? And the first night that I, after the election, is the swearing in. And they said, oh, we need to now swear you in. And they said, you know, there was a, a, a woman, uh, Lisa was her name, and Dave, would you please come up so we can swear you in? Uh, could you please raise your right hand? Do you solemnly swear to uphold the whatever, blah, blah, blah? And I said, um, excuse me, but I will need to affirm. And all of a sudden, you know, heads turned. Now, what's he doing now? Um, but the, the, the interim business manager said, that is perfectly legal. Thank you, David. And if I accomplished anything in my one term on a school board was that when I went to the next year, when they swore in the next group that was elected in, the wording was changed in the legal documents of the school. Do you solemnly swear or affirm to uphold? If I accomplished anything, it was that. Um, I enjoyed every moment on a school board. And I know that there's a lot of school board members that don't say that. 
Um, I got a lot of advice from Uncle Johnny, you know, because he was a school administrator, and I wanted to know what should a school board member do? School board members do not run the school. They elect the officials, or they hire the officials that will run the school. So maybe the next major thing that I did, and maybe the biggest impact, was I had the privilege of being involved in hiring a superintendent. And I hired a superintendent, and I, and I pushed for this one individual. And many in the district do not like him because he was not just an educator. He was an educator who was also a businessman who believed that everyone, not only students, had to be held accountable, but staff members did as well. Um, I got along great with him. There were many times, and, and I learned a lot from him, when, when, when teachers and community members would rail on him, he would say to me privately, you know, David, I don't understand why people would just want to be evil. But you and I both know that there's somebody else that's in control of the situation and not just me. And, and then I realized, you know, the Lord really had led me to the right person and I was able to convince the rest of the school board that this really was the person. And I believe we, we voted unanimously. There were uh, seven of us on the board. I believe it was a 7-0 vote to hire this, this individual. Um, some of you that know me real well might be shocked by this, but one of the things that, that he said and others said was that I was the voice of calmness and reason on the school board. I don't believe that, but to them I was. And it was a three-year span. Again, I enjoyed every minute of it, but it comes with dangers. And the dangers is it can quickly feed into your pride. Because I liked it when people said, you're the voice of calmness and reason in these meetings. You know, I liked it when people wanted me to run. The danger when you get into any kind of a, a political thing, and I, you know, for me, I drew the line. Um, all of a sudden, winning gets to be important. And that can't ever be the reason. You know, the, the, the one thing, too, is that, that the meteor that struck the earth there created a lot of chaos, and not everybody thought it was good. And there's probably a lot of people that look at the things I'm involved in, whether it was a school board or other places, that think I don't bring a lot of good. Uh, but be careful if you get involved in things that you, get, you stay involved for the right reasons. Because it would, they, when I, I actually, um, when my term expired, I pulled another partition petition because you have to get your petitions filled out with your signatures every three years. There's so many days before the budget vote, before the election, where those have, all have to be turned in. And I pulled the petition. And I knew that my family wasn't real thrilled with me doing it again because it is a major time constraint. You know, they will tell you that it's one meeting every two weeks, but then there's budget hearings and there's budget meetings and there's executive sessions to plan this and that and, and if you really would allow yourself to get into it, you could be busy easily two nights a week or more. Um, you should go to events. You know, the, a school board member should be at concerts and, and sporting events and things like that. Um, but I like the attention and I like people wanting me to be there. And just before my second term when I would have had to put that petition in. And based on the feedback I was getting from people, I probably would have been reelected. But I was asked to serve on the elder committee. 
And I remember in Coconut Creek calling my wife and saying, Honey, guess what? I decided not to run for the school board. And she was thrilled. And I said, The reason is... (laughs) She was not too thrilled. (laughs) Um, But now I'm going to tell you, and I hope she doesn't mind, but I'm going to tell you even a more personal thing. Because when you get involved in things like the community and people really wanting you to do things... There's this, this ability that the community has to suck you into more. The school district went into a little bit of a crisis. They had a school board member that spouted off in a school board meeting, and I was there. And she continued to spout off after the meeting at a teacher, and it did not go well, and she had to resign. And then the superintendent called me at home. He says, I need to meet with you. Bye. And he said, um, We need you to run to fill the last year of so-and-so's term. And you're going to win because we're going to ask everybody that's interested to support, uh, to give a letter as to why you want to be considered. And the school board will make the decision, and they want you on this board. We need you. You're the voice of reason, the voice of calmness, on and on and on. And And I asked the church to pray, and I asked my family to pray, And I struggled. I was just torn apart with this decision. This is where I'm needed. This is where I can do my good in the community. And I said to my wife, you know, you need to give me, and I knew what she felt. I knew how she felt. She works in the district. Imagine what it's like being a district employee when your husband's one of the school board members, especially during a time of difficulty and crisis. And I'm driving to school for a meeting with the superintendent to give him my answer, and I still don't have a firm conviction. And the Lord just brought all my priorities back in line on my way to school. And I went in to the superintendent, and I said, you know, the Lord is not telling me to accept this responsibility. He goes, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's just not talking to you right now. Because he said, he's already told me you're the one. And I said, Joe, no, I'm sorry, you know. And I gave him the name of somebody else. And when I got home, I said to my wife, I told Joe no. And she said, well, why would you, why would you have done that? And what I said to her was, if I love you more than anything in the world, how could I do something that would make your life so difficult? Or something to that effect. You know, the Lord had to show me that, yeah... I had that moment when I had impact. But to continue in that would have been about me and not about them and certainly not about my family. And that I had to get my priorities back in shape and my impact's done and I'm gone. And the superintendent's still there, so it, I guess my little bit of impact lives on. So church camp is teaching me to speak really fast. We have eight minutes left. Uh, What I'll do is, with the Lord's help here, um, I have a number of scriptures I will not read. I plan to, uh, but I'll quickly, if you are interested, could jot them down. Uh, I guess I don't have a... I'm I'm here. Why am I here? Impact as a leader. Brother Tom asked me to speak uh, because of my experience locally with with an outreach and also more recently uh, being asked to 
considered uh, as an assistant elder for the Upper Marlboro Congregation and, and so forth. And Brother Tom knows me well, and he, he knows that, that I sought out neither of those. And, and um, it, 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 leadership has nothing to do with any re- leadership role that I've ever played in my life. It has nothing to do with me, period. Absolutely nothing. It might have something to do with my inability to say no. Um, but it also has a lot to do with my philosophy on leadership, and that's what I wanted to share with everyone today. I don't think I'll have time to do it, but I can, I can certainly capture it in two words, and that is servant leadership. Servant leadership. There are two types of people in this world, those who wish to be served and those who serve. Basically, everybody's in this whole pop, you know, the population of the entire world can be broken down, I think, in, in two, two groupings in that way. The interesting is, thing, though, is that Paul makes, makes it very clear that we're all exhorted to serve. Everybody is. Galatians 5.13. Some, however, are called to leadership. We could look at Titus 1.7-9 in that respect. But, Titus, but Paul makes it very clear to Titus that that leadership that he's speaking about is really servant leadership, that we not be self-willed, that we be a lover of hospitality, that we be a lover of those things that are good, and so forth. So it's all about servant leadership. And what we do as leaders really has a whole lot to do with who we are. 1 Corinthians 5, or 15, 10, where Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Jesus came to turn leaders, the concept of leadership on its head, totally upside down. Matthew 23, 8 to 12 we know that scripture, that, that uh, those that are called to be great serve. That's not the world's concept of, of, of leadership whatsoever. Leadership is not about controlling people. It's about caring for people. It's not about being in charge. It's about building community. It's not about gaining turf. It's about losing ego. It's not about giving pep talks, but it's about helping others find meaning in their lives. So what is servant leadership, according to my, my philosophy anyway? It's all about having a servant heart, and that has to do with the heart being the seat of your, your motives, your emotions, your priorities, and approaching it all with wholeheartedness. And if we can have a servant heart, then the rest of that sort of follows. It spills from the servant heart such things as willing to be used of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. It's about having a healthy self-concept. That's humility. That's viewing ourselves in the perspective of the greatness of God, who he is. No, not that we're a a, a, a rug to be, be wiped, have feet wiped upon, but no, but having that concept of who we are and the concept of the greatness of God. Second Corinthians 12.9. And then also to be prepared to serve. And Second Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved of God. Second Timothy 2.20 and 21. If any man... Purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. Meet for the master's use. Have you ever thought about being, as a servant leader, 
being conveniently available to God, being that tool in the toolbox that you always kind of go to because that's the one that always seems to work. Do you, do you see yourself as that tool being conveniently used by God? And that sort of gets to that question of not being able to say no. So in summation, uh, servant leadership is really not about doing. It's about being. It's about a state of being. And so in that respect, um, leave you with some encouragement as, as leaders to be authentic, to be the same person in every circumstance, to be vulnerable, that is to be honest with your feelings, be willing to make, admit mistakes that are made and to admit imperfections, to be accepting, that is to accept and embrace what? Disagreement. Accept ideas as valid for consideration and focus on the idea and not the person who presented the idea, sort of the, the, the carpet in the church idea. Bob. Be present. That means be available at all times. Be, most of all, available to God and then to one another. And then be useful. Be of service to one another. Remember, as a leader, we're there to serve. And then finally, I'd like just to leave you with what, what Isaiah in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, so beautifully captures. So beautifully captures, if you read that. It's all about being sent. It's all about being sent. Having sight, insight, and vision as a servant leader so that you can be sent by God. So, sorry to have rushed through this, but I pray that um, um, any impact that, that we, we have will be much like that meteor. It will dissipate. It will dissipate as it relates to our role in that but yet the, the, the impact for the Lord would be lasting. Um, because we don't have much time, I'm going to um, just rush through a few bullet points that I uh, was hoping to expound on, but that's fine. Uh, I'd like to start with um, a Christian business associate of mine and a very close friend of mine. Um, him and I have the same personal tenet, and that is, and I share this with other people, and I tell other people who are not Christians but who kind of come to me for advice on their careers because they want to be successful in their vocation. And I tell them, whether you believe in God, agnostic, atheist, or whatever, and you want to be successful in your career, I promise you, you will be successful if you read a proverb a day. And every, there's 31 proverbs, there's 31 days in a calendar days. If you read a proverb a day, that's how, that's how I start my day. You will, and you follow the sayings of Solomon, you will be successful in your career. That's guaranteed. The other thing is, as a business leader, the, the whole objective of being a business leader is to be profitable and to run a successful business. The first thing I would advise is make sure you never lose focus of what you consider what success is. I know several, um, I'll say several associates, friends, people I know, who have been very successful in business in a monetary way. And that success has come at a great personal cost to their lives personally, 
to their families, and to those around them. In the end, they are very successful by the world standards, but their personal lives, they've paid a dear, dear price. And it's amazing the relationship there between the time they spent in their vocation as compared to the time they spent with their families. It's directionally proportional. And what I mean by that is they obviously spent their whole, they were consumed during the growth years of their business. They were completely consumed in growing that business. They were extremely successful. Some of their multi, multi-millionaires, these friends of mine, and they pay now a huge cost because of the, sh- the shape their families are in. And that is not, you hear these stories all the time. These are personal anecdotes for myself. So I will say that you have to maintain that big picture at all times. And a lot of people say, you know, what's it going to take for me to be successful? And of course, we all want to be monetarily successful. It helps in many ways. My favorite saying my father used to tell me is, money is a great servant, but a very poor master. And and that success, it's not always how much you work. My favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because people always say, Lou, what's the key to success? And I always tell them, read your Bible, read it. I tell this to people who aren't Christians. I tell this to people I just meet in business. They say, Lou, what's your key to success? I tell them, read Ecclesiastics 9-11. That'll tell you everything about success. And I'll read it here quickly. It says, this is Solomon speaking. He says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And it is very true. Uh, I'm going to just leap forward here in a few things. I do not when I I do not apostolize in my business career. However, at every available opportunity, I do kind of make sure people know where I stand in all things. And from the feedback from people who interact with me in business, there's no doubt they know I'm a Christian by comments they make to me. The reason I don't apostolize and get on my soapbox and and wave my Christian flag is because I find I've seen other people in business, the business world who do that, and when when, when they look at you then, they look at this yardstick that follows you around, okay? It's this imaginary yardstick, and they look at it and say, okay, is he measuring up to some preconceived idea of what I think a Christian should be? And guess what? There's a good chance you won't live up to that yardstick. So I'm saying, don't go there. Your actions will speak louder than your words. You don't have to tell someone you're a Christian. By the way you interact in business, by your actions, guess what? They will know it. And along with that... Um, when you interact with people in business, with my employees, with my customers, with business associates, there will come a time, probably more often than you want to see, is where someone will, if I can say the word, accuse you of being unprofessional, lying, cheating, misquoting you, or otherwise. That will happen. That's just life. That's just the way it goes. My personal conviction is, don't get on your soapbox and trying to correct that wrong and try and say, you know, no, no, that's not what I'm about. You know, and, and really try and, uh, if I could say, recover your reputation. Take your lumps, turn the other cheek, continue on, and your actions going forward 
will speak much louder than anything you could ever tell them to justify your position or justify the reasoning that, because usually dialogues like that can get very convoluted and then you end up with a he said, she said, and it, it gets very, um, I, I find that it, <laughs> it can get very convoluted very quickly. And my, my personal experience has been to literally turn the other cheek. And, and guess what? Um, the good Lord will always find you through at all levels at all times. And that's what I find to be um, uh, the key to success there. And uh, I'm rushing here, but my last little piece of information is a lot of times when you're running a business, things will not go the right way. Um, when I say that the right way, they will go down. And uh, not always, but sometimes they will. And there'll be certain things that happen, whether it's personal interactions that go sour, or whether it is the actual monetary business values that go sour. Um, you have to have faith. You have to pray a lot. And you have to accept the outcome. And I don't mean to give up, but the faith and the prayer is huge. And I rushed through it all, but that's about it. Thank you for staying. I apologize for keeping you a little long. I just want to conclude with this final verse. John fourteen thirty one says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go ahead. So when the next time the Lord comes to you and says, I'd like you to go over here and make an impact at this corner of the world, arise and do it. Thank you. <laughs>